Some research will tell you that if you focus more on the warmth piece or elevating and creating those key moments, that those moments can actually return like a 900% ROI over just fixing problems and, you know, filling the potholes. Welcome to the Simple Brand Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you create simple experiences for your customers and for your team members. Each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with business leaders and authors who will teach you how to differentiate your business with the one thing your customers need the most, simplicity. Your customers live in a complex world. Let's make it simple. Now here's your host, Matt Lyles. Helping you create loyal customers and loyal employees all through the power of simplicity. This is the Simple Brand Podcast, now heard around the world, including Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. I'm your host, Matt Lyles, and this week I'm talking with Stan Phelps. Stan's the founder of Purple Goldfish Think Tank. He's a TEDx speaker, a Forbes contributor, an IBM futurist, and a certified speaking professional that focuses on the future of customer experience. And Stan's the best-selling author of the Goldfish series of books. That's 13 books that focus on all the various ways to help brands drive differentiation, increase loyalty, and promote positive word of mouth. While Stan and I touch on some of the lessons across all his books, we mainly discuss the lessons from his book, Purple Goldfish 2.0, 10 Ways to Attract Raving Customers. So here it is. Here's my interview with Stan Phelps. Hey, Dan, how are you? Welcome to the show. Yeah, good to be here. Yeah, I am excited about this because you've been... Well, you've been writing about goldfish for, what, 10 years now? Well, about 12 years. But yeah, my first book came out just over 10 years ago. Wow. You've got 11 different colors represented, I think. To me, I think you're the Dr. Seuss of marketing and customer experience books now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to cover the whole spectrum. Yeah. There you go. Well, talk to me about your journey in, in writing these different goldfish books. Yeah, so a little bit of background. I spent two decades working in brand marketing. First on the brand side, a couple of great opportunities with Adidas, the PGA of America, the New York Yankees. Then I went to the agency side where I was a number two at an agency for about eight years. And I just saw marketing changing so quickly. And the marketing that we did from creating experiences was more about kind of interrupting you and grabbing your attention, trying to get earned media. So we did larger than life stuff. And I just saw it moving so quickly that the customer had much more information, a much bigger say in the process. And I thought not enough of marketing was about the experience that you actually provided. And so I had kind of this moment of truth back in 2009 and it started me on a journey of looking for companies that did little things to separate themselves from an experience perspective. That quest was to try to get a thousand and one examples. And that ended up being the first book, The Purple Goldfish. Wow. That thousand and one. That's, that's a lot. Yeah. I 
jokingly tell people <laughs> that was about the stupidest thing I could have ever done. Because once you get past, I've learned this from now writing a bunch of books, is once you get past about two or 300 examples, you already see the pattern. Yeah. And it's just a lot more the same from that point. I think so. A lot of times when you get that level of volume too, you can start to make some of the connections and see how some of these experiences, they all do fit this one pattern. But then if you start to expand to other definitions of, okay, here's ways to take it deeper. Well, then there's subsets. They all still follow the same pattern, right? but then some of them will follow in this category and some of them will fall in this category. Right. And we're going to get to this. The trick is to try to make it understandable and not too complex. You're speaking my love language. (laughs) (laughs) So I I jokingly say I should have taken advice that someone once gave me about cross-country skiing. Have you ever been cross-country skiing? Not cross-country. Downhill, but not cross-country. Well, I will tell you that cross-country skiing is about 10 times harder to get it from a perspective. So once someone once gave me advice Matt. And they said, if you ever think about doing cross-country skiing, here was the advice. They said, start with a small country. (laughs) So I should have picked 501. It would have been, it would have saved me a lot of time, but no, it was good. And what I learned was just really getting a, a variety of examples. You know, I thought because I was a marketer that everything was about the customer and that's where the sun rose and set. And what I realized is that the companies, it was amazing, the companies that really got it, Matt, didn't put their customers first. They realized the importance of having engaged team members to be able to deliver that experience. Yeah. And because that's where all the value gets created. I wasn't even seeing that there was a second book, but it led me to And again, I didn't learn my lesson because I'm not smart, but I did another thousand and one examples, but the same concept, (laughs) but more focused on little things that you do for your employees. Right. Yeah, because we can say that we want to put our customer first and we can create a customer experience around that all day long. But if we don't have the right employee experience, then I don't think that we'll ever reach that level that we want with our customers. I don't know if you're familiar with Annette Franz. Yeah. She says, yes, customers come first, but your employees come more first. (laughs) I like that. Yeah. (laughs) That's like everyone's equal. Just some people are more equal, right? Exactly. (laughs) All right. So you get all these stories, thousand and one stories. Why goldfish and why purple? Then why all the other colors? Yes. Great question. So the the goldfish is obviously a metaphor and it was partly inspired by one of the examples in the project. And we have to have a moment of silence because the the hotel chain no longer does this. But have, have you ever stayed at a Kimpton property before? I've never stayed there. I've, I've, I've heard of them, but I've never You've stayed heard of them. I want to. Know. Okay. So if people talk about a Kimpton experience, they usually gush, you know, they, they truly get this concept of doing a little bit more going above and beyond doing stuff with personality, showing a lot of warmth and competence. So if you stay at a Kimpton, there's always gourmet coffee in the lobby in the morning, in the afternoon, they do wine tasting for free fresh fruit, 
They have a great program called Raid the Mini Bar. They give you a $10 credit for your mini bar. But one of the things that they did, if you were staying at a Kimpton property and maybe you were getting a little lonely, they would offer to give you a goldfish for your stay. And the program was called Guppy Love. And I love that as just a, a little thing that they did. Imagine staying at the hotel. Is it? There's no chance you would leave from that stay without putting it on Facebook or Instagramming it, or at least telling everyone, you know, when you got back from the the trip about the experience. Right. Absolutely. So I love that. But I also say the goldfish was even more personal to me because my very first pet was a goldfish. Do you remember how old you were, Matt, when you got your first pet? I was, I was five or six, I believe. Okay. So I was six. Yeah. And I'll never forget it. I won the goldfish. I went to a carnival <laughs> and I As threw the ping pong ball. Yeah. And I came home with my goldfish. Now, my goldfish was small. You know, it was maybe an inch, inch and a half. Yeah. Well, it was in a tiny bag, probably. Yeah. A tiny bag, you know, like a, you know, pl- I remember my mom was not as excited as I was for some reason. Of course. So it turns out that the average goldfish only grows to be about three to maybe three and a half inches, which is the size of your thumb. Yeah. Oh, yeah, average yeah. person's thumb is three inches, male and female. So, and some don't grow to be that size. Like they get stunted, they don't grow. Some grow to be bigger and come to find out, and this is where kind of the metaphor is of a goldfish is that the world's largest goldfish is nearly 19 inches. Whoa. Now that's not a koi. That's yeah. not a carp, but yeah, you're you're putting your hands apart. I see it. yeah. it's it's the size of an average domesticated house cat to put it in perspective. 6 times the size of average. Now if we just put that in perspective, it would be Matt like you walking out of your apartment or house and bumping into somebody who's three stories tall. Yeah. Shocking. Like how how is that even possible, you know, that 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 could happen? And it turns out if you're a goldfish, there's basically five reasons why you grow. And the reason why it's a metaphor is that those same five reasons apply to everyone that's listening right now. Your business will grow based on these same five reasons. And I'll go through them really quick. Yeah. Most people have heard about the first one. If you're a goldfish, your growth is determined by the size of the bowl or the pond that you're in. This is a direct correlation. The bigger the bowl, the more you typically grow. So what's the size of the bowl in business? It's simply the market. And the bigger the market you serve, the more you can grow, right? Makes sense. Their growth, here's number two, is also impacted by the other goldfish in the bowl or the pond. Right. And this one's an inverse relationship. So the less goldfish in that bowl or pond, the more they grow, the more goldfish it'll it'll stunt their growth. So who are the other? This is the simple one. Who are the other goldfish in business? Your competition. Yeah, your competition. Number three, I used to tell people was the hardest of the five until March 13th, 2020. <laughs> Oh, man. Because because when you're a goldfish, your growth is impacted by the environment, the surrounding environment that you're in and the quality of the water of that that external environment. And so the more nutrients, the clearer the water is, the more they typically grow. 
If the water's cloudy and there's not a lot of nutrients in the water, it stunts their growth. So what is that? I, I always tell, you got to kind of think macro. What is that when you're in business? It's simply the economy. Right. The ability to get capital, you know, regulations and tariffs, global pandemics, the ability, consumer confidence, inflation. Number four is pretty simple. It's how that goldfish does in their first four months of life. So they're tiny when they're born. A baby goldfish is called a fry. A fry? Wow. As in small fry, they're tiny. They have 90 to 100 brothers and sisters. And they're about the size of a top of a pin. So how they get out of the gate is absolutely key. And how they do in those first critical four months will be an indicator of how big they ultimately get. So really quick, we said the size of the bowl was the market. The right. other goldfish were your competition. That surrounding environment was the economy. And number four was how you do in the first four months, 120 days. Right. Number five is, if you're a goldfish, is your genetic makeup. So what are you born with, right, that separates you from everyone else, and the stronger your genes are and the more that you're separated, typically the bigger you grow. If your genes are weak and you're like everyone else, the less you typically grow. And so the payoff from this whole thing is I'll ask an audience, I go, who here has been in business for more than four months? And like everyone's handle raise, you have as well, I have. I just hit my 10 year for my own business. And I go, all right, well, let's throw that out of the remaining four. Does anyone here have control over the market? No, right? You can change the market, but you don't have control over it. How about your competition? Not unless you're acquiring them. Right. And I always joke, I go, does anyone here have control over the economy? <laughs> you know, Matt, see me after the podcast, please, yeah. if you do. Yeah. We have um, requests. <laughs> and, and the takeaway is, look, the only thing you control is your genetic makeup, how you differentiate yourself compared to everyone else. And I think if we're being honest, it's hard to differentiate just on your product or service. We're living in a world where if we're being honest, there's not a lot of difference in the product or the service, but I would say where you can stand out is not just what you do, but how you do it and why you do it. And the goldfish is the the thread that goes through the 17 different books in the series. It's all about ways that you can differentiate to growth via differentiation. Now, the purple really quick was an ode to New Orleans. Most famous event from New Orleans, Mardi Gras. Purple is one of three official colors, purple, green, and gold. And that ended up being the first three colors in the series. And the reason why it's an ode to New Orleans really quick is that there's one word that comes from New Orleans that exemplifies this idea of doing a little bit more, going beyond just the transaction. And it's a word that Mark Twain once said in his autobiography, he said, it was worth traveling all the way to New Orleans to get. The word is called lanyap. Lanyap, yeah. Creole word, so French and Spanish. And, you know, Twain says how it developed in kind of the Spanish part of the city. 
it's the idea that it was commonplace if you were in New Orleans, and they still use that word a ton there. Anytime somebody does a little something extra, right? It's lanyap. But it was customary if you did business with someone that the merchant would honor the relationship by doing a little something extra. And so I love this idea of how do you differentiate by creating that great experience. And what I found when I studied a thousand examples is that there's roughly 10 ways that you can do it. And five are about what I call value. How do you do little things to show that you care to go above and beyond? And you're going to love this because it's right up your alley. Five of the ways is about what I call maintenance. What is it like to have to do business with you? And how easy do you make it for the customer? Yeah, so that informed kind of the, the entire first book. That's it. Wow. I love hearing origin stories around how work is created and origin stories around concepts and books. And I love the concept of, uh, of, of Lanyap. I think there are two words that I can never spell correctly on the first try. One of those is silhouette. The other silhouette, is right. Lan- the other is Lanyap. Right. You know, phonetically, it would be L-A-N-Y-A-P. Right. Right. But when you if you could tell me why phonetic doesn't start with an F, that's a whole different conversation. Um, So for people that are listening, you got to remember it as three sets of three letters. L-A-G. Yes. N-I-A-P-P-E. Nine letters. Yeah. There you go. And and the G is obviously silent. Of course, as it is. And that's how they roll in New Orleans. Just really quickly, origin story is that, you know, again, I was kind of doing, working at this agency, creating a lot of larger than life stuff and realizing that the work I was doing was part of the problem and not part of the solution. And I had this kind of moment of truth on a rooftop bar in New York City. And that little event was kind of the the impetus for starting this journey. Is this around... uh understanding and whether we are able to meet or exceed customer expectations? Yeah, exactly. So I had a conversation with one of those offhand conversations with an older gentleman and we started debate. He was waiting for someone. We were waiting for someone to show up. We talked about the concept of being on time. I think I probably said something that my dad would always say about being on, you know, Vince Lombardi S type of thing. And this guy looked me in the eye and he said, no, he said, there's no such thing as being on time. And I went, wait, wait, wait. And he goes, he, he stuck his finger in my face. I'll never forget. He gave me the finger wave. And he said, (laughs) in fact, he said, on time is a myth. He said, people in life are either early or they're late. He said, no one is ever technically on time. And I took the train home to Connecticut where I lived that night. And I went, you know, that same reasoning applies to the customers that we have and that we create an experience for. And I felt, and I still do, that if you're only trying to set out to meet expectations, that that's a recipe for failure. Oh, yeah. Right. It's like trying to play prevent defense in football. It only seems to prevent you from doing one thing. Right, right. 
<laughs> winning. Yeah. So, you know, it was the idea of that, look, if we can agree that we never, ever just meet the expectations, then the question should be, should we try to do more or should we try to do less? And so what I wanted to study is, was brands that made that decision to go beyond the transaction, to honor the relationship um, and do that little extra. Yeah, because meeting expectations, if you're looking at it from a survey ranking or something, meeting expectations is like a three out of five. Right. Your customer's satisfied. Right. If they're satisfied, that means that the very next brand that comes along and exceeds their expectations, they're going to they're going to leave you so quickly and go with them. Right. And and the research bears that out. Like yeah. 60 to 80% of people who who defect and leave a brand either rate themselves as satisfied, and this is scary, either satisfied or very satisfied right before they defect. I think customer satisfaction is a really weak metric. The only thing I think that metric has going for it, you know, University of Michigan created it, is that you've got decades of data, right? Whereas a lot of the other metrics are newer. Yeah. Well, so if that's the case, we want to not just meet customer expectations. We want to be exceeding them. What can we do to better understand our customer expectations and then understand how we can exceed them? That's a great question. I think in the Purple Goldfish kind of book, we talk about a four-step process. We call it the idea process. And so what I think a lot of people get themselves in trouble with is they jump right to design, right? They're not thinking about who they're for, like the customers that they're for, and more importantly, what do those customers value, right? Because we wanna be great at what our most important customers value the most. So the I in this idea process is what we call inquire. So it's trying to get close to the customer to understand their needs and to be able to drive insight from that and then to be able to use that insight to then design the experience that's memorable from that. Okay. You talk about, you know, uh, your 10 different ways to be able to do this in your Purple Goldfish book. Yeah. Uh, half of them are the Lanyap strategies. The other half are the maintenance strategies, how to make it easier. So I'm curious, where's the ideal starting point for a brand to focus? Should they focus more on those Lanyap strategies or should they focus more on the maintenance strategies? So we would describe the two different things within the experience as what we call my co-author, Evan Carroll and I call either a gap or an opportunity. Right. So okay. a gap, yeah. think of a gap as like a pothole, right? So there's some part of the experience where you're you're not meeting the expectations of the customer, right? You're not making it easy for them to be able to get what they need. And so what 80% of brands do is they focus entirely on these gaps or potholes, right? They want to smooth like you would do with a with a, a pothole. You would smooth out that part or that touch point within the experience. Whereas only 20% of the effort that's generated in customer experience, and I think it's a missed quote unquote opportunity, 
is the idea that we understand that not all parts of the experience are created equal and that there's an ability at key moments in the experience yeah. to raise the level and elevate the experience, what Evan and I call an opportunity to create kind of like a peak experience or a peak moment. And um, only one fifth of all effort is focused on the peaks and those key moments. What I believe is, if we're being honest, most of the experience that we create is forgettable. (laughs) And what's important is we've got to correct things and make it smooth and simple and easy, but we can't miss the importance of creating an experience that stands out and that creates some a great either first impression, something that's peak along the way, and kind of that great last impression. And so that's where a lot of the value is focused on is what do you do is what we call a throw-in, what gets added to the experience that's kind of signature. And the best way to describe that would be like a double tree hotel experience. Their signature throw-in is a warm chocolate chip cookie. You've got me hungry for cookies now. There there you go. And so that's one of the ways that you can make a great first or last impression are important. I think one of the big revelations from looking across is, is the concept of sampling as a little something extra. Okay. So of a hundred percent of what we can do for the customers we already have, if you had to guess, Matt, what percentage do the customers who are already writing a check to you of a hundred percent of what you can do for them, what does the average customer know? Oh gosh. Um, I think that's a low number or a high number. It's low. It is less than a third at least. It is. It is. You're right on the nail. It's typically between 20 and 25% of all of your capabilities. So what I love is why not when you do that little extra, why don't you give them a little something of another thing that you can do for the customer. We already know it's, you know, one-tenth the cost to upsell a current customer. Right. But why not expose them? So one of my absolute favorite examples in the entire project came from the Twin Cities. And there's an ice cream shop in the Twin Cities called uh, Izzy's Ice Cream. And if you order a scoop of ice cream at Izzy's, They let you pick a second flavor for free and they give you this little baby mini scoop on top. It's pretty sweet. And they make 130 different flavors of ice cream. We all know like we feel bad when we waste a scoop right on like a flyer. Right. So we never try anything new. Right. What a great way to give. And by the way, you order two scoops, you get two little Izzy's on top. Yeah, you do. But I just love that, you know, Bigelow tea. I love this. When you buy a box of Bigelow tea, and I'm a fan of their green tea, they will throw in one little tea bag of an additional flavor into the box, right? What did it cost them to do that? Nothing. Yeah. But it was giving them a taste of something else. So I think we think of sampling as something that we do for prospective customers. Right. But why can't we use that for the customers we already have? Did you know that in addition to my podcast and my articles, 
I speak to audiences all over to help them simplify their customer experience and simplify their employee experience. I've spent the last few years leading a crusade of simplicity across the globe. If you want a winning brand, you have to provide a simple experience to your customers and to your team members. Whether it's a live event or a virtual event, I'd love to partner with you and teach your audience how to do just that. With over a decade in marketing, I know how to hook and captivate an audience. And as a speaker, I know how to connect with the audience. Along with my lessons, I use stories and humor to keep everyone engaged and inspired. Then they leave with the knowledge and next steps to transform their business. As an event planner, you're managing lots of details to give your audience the most memorable event. The last thing you need is a speaker who will make your event memorable for all the wrong reasons. Not only will I leave your audience energized and inspired, I'll make it easy for your team to work with me. Hey, if I've built my brand around simplicity, then you know I'm going to make it simple for you. When you visit mattliles.com speaking, you'll find everything you need to know, including details on my topics, promotional materials, and most importantly, a link to connect with my team so we can book your event. So visit mattliles.com speaking. I can't wait to help your audience brand out from the crowd. I think it may come from this mindset that we have that we're always so focused more on customer acquisition than right. we are on customer retention. And this isn't the same thing as retaining your customers, but it's you've got an opportunity to provide lower cost marketing via sampling to someone who's already bought into your brand. Right, right. Who's already in your system, yeah, we know already, like from like there. procurement, right? They're already in your system, right? Yeah. So how do you expose them to different things? Um, you know, guarantees are something that falls into that little extra. Oh, yeah. How do you do a little more to stand behind your product or service? And I know your background at FedEx, that was always a big thing that they held their hat on. Absolutely was that guarantee. We talk about a little extra, the category we call it is pay it forward. So sometimes it doesn't have to be something that you do for the customer is that little extra. It may be something that you do for the community on behalf or in tribute to the customers that you have. Right. So there are a lot of ways to do the little extra. To your point, I think you were asking, do you do stuff that's on the value side first or do you do stuff that's on the maintenance side, which is kind of that make it easier, fix the problems, smooth out the experience. And this is the post I wrote today is it's not an or question. I think sometimes we have what's called the tyranny of or. One of my guy who wrote a foreword for my purpose book, David Howitt says, we should embrace the power of and. So I would tell you, you need to fix, as the first thing you do, you need to fix your most damaging gaps, Yeah. but also focus with the equal amount of you know, verve and energy to your most promising opportunities. And so it's doing both. Post I wrote today was, which road do you choose? It shouldn't be a choice. Yeah. It's not an either or. It's a, I guess, kind of like improv, a yes and. 
Yes. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yes. And, and, and here's the thing again, I think people gravitate towards gaps just like they do towards acquisition because it's the easier thing. It's the thing that they know fixing problems, you know, to really dive into all of the steps that somebody takes within that journey. Disney does a great job of this. You know, they create these magical moments that, you know, after you go home, you don't remember the entire experience, right? What stands out are these kind of elevated moments within it. And they're, they're the things, frankly, that you tell others about. And they're the things that you look back on and go, man, I really, that really was memorable to yeah, me. That's what it was about. Yeah. And so the point of what I wrote today, it was on LinkedIn, was, yeah, you can work all you want to like fix the potholes and create a very straight and flat road, right? That's easy for your customers to navigate it's not going to be exciting. I think when we think about creating an experience, it's about we should be chasing more of the interesting. Like I think most customers would want to be on that curvy, fun, bumpy road because it's a little more thrilling. They're a little more, there's a little more to it. It's a little more engaging. They're seeking that out rather than just the, we've all been on that highway that you go for, it seems like for a hundred miles and it's, you could almost set it on cruise control. And well, and, and it's like, yeah, this lane is so straight. It's so smooth. There's really nothing, you know, outstanding or, or, or interesting on either side of me. Yeah, this is really smooth, but I'm probably going to fall asleep. <laughs> Right. So that's that's the key. By the way, we can thank Dwight Eisenhower because he created the the uh, interstate highway system. Right. He was president. And this is interesting. Do you know that every 10 miles they would have to have at least a mile of straight road? Oh, wow. And the reason being was because he was World War Two general is if we needed to create landing strips, the highway played that role. What's interesting is Eisenhower, when he was first getting into the government, they tried to cross the country with like a motorcycle, a bus, a truck, and a car. And it took something like 65 days to cross the country. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And they almost gave up at certain points. Yeah. So just a little trivia there. No, that's fascinating. I'd never heard of that. But, you know, like thinking about focusing on just an entirely smooth, straight road or the scenic kind of bumpy kind of fun experience road. I think, yes, like there are some potholes that that would need to be fixed. But I think it's likely those moment of truth potholes, not necessarily the ones that really don't make that much difference. Right. Right. And that's the key is is, again, if you understand your customers, you understand what's most important to them you're able to define those most damaging potholes or gaps. Well, so when we talked about the mindset around that, it's always easier to want to focus on fixing things, just like it's the same mindset that we want to focus more on customer acquisition than customer retention. And somewhat related to that is 
Not so much customer retention, but again, using the people that are already bought into your brand, using your current customers right. to focus on word of mouth marketing, to focus on referrals. And I've heard you talk about that. So talk to me about the missed opportunity for referral and word of mouth. Yeah, I think it's a simple math question, right? Because I used to think, and again, I, I used to be all about the acquisition So that was, you know, it's hard to fault somebody when their paycheck is dependent upon that philosophy, right? Of acquire, interrupt. The simple math, I used to think, well, if you traditionally acquired a customer, they would be roughly equal to a referred customer, like someone that came to you via referral. And the math will tell you that it's not even close, Matt. So a referred customer stays with you longer right? And they spend more. So over their lifetime, they will spend up to twice the amount of money with you. So hang on one second. You're saying not the customer that's happy enough to refer others, but you're saying that a customer that someone referred you to them. Right. So traditionally acquired would be you ran some type of advertising, direct marketing, you know, got them in the funnel, you got them through acquisition, they became a customer versus somebody who came in because, hey, Matt, you recommended X. So that customer that you recommended is so much more valuable compared to the traditionally acquired customer. And here's the thing. Again, they stay longer, they spend more, so up to twice the amount of money. But this is where the magic starts to happen. Because I've been referred myself, Matt, what am I more apt to do? You're likely going to make a referral yourself. To other people, right? I came in with a predisposition. I, I'm more apt to share. So over my lifetime, again, I already stay longer. But over my lifetime, I refer up to twice the amount of people. So if you put it together, she tells two people and then she tells two people. That's Remember that split screen thing? It's a... Uh... Heather Locklear in her Fabergé shampoo. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so a referred customer is four times as valuable to the organization as a traditionally acquired one. Wow. And then you start to hear stats. Like I, I was listening to, and it's a great episode with you and Joey Coleman. Oh, thank you. you. Know, we, again, we lose customers really quickly, mm-hmm. right? We're not providing that great experience. And here's the thing, studies, this is great from Gartner. They said, if you could just five percentage points, Matt. So if you could reduce your attrition rate by five percentage points. So for example, the average insurance company renews 80% of their policies. So when I say 5%, it would be like, all right, you you had 80%. If we could just jump that up to 85%. Yeah. The bottom line impact to profitability is between 25% up to 95%. Wow. From just five percentage points. And so you'd go, well, obviously you don't have as much of a leaky bucket. You're not having to replace because it's expensive to replace customers. Absolutely. But really, if we're, we're honest about it, the reason why your retention probably went up is because you now have happier customers that are getting a better experience. And I do this in all my workshops and people, the light bulb goes off and goes, uh, duh, what do people do that have a, a good experience and they stick around? 
they tend to tell other people. That's it. And so, and this is not my quote, but I love this from Peter Shankman. He goes, this isn't really hard. He goes, take care of the customers you have and they will bring you the customers you want. And then that simplifies your acquisition efforts. You don't have to work as hard in acquiring new customers. But I'm going to challenge you because you, because obviously you do a lot of work on simplicity, which to me would be more on the, you know, the maintenance side of the equation. Yep. By the way, the value maintenance thing is just, it used to be my dating philosophy. Okay. When I was single, we got married around the same time. I'm I'm 04. I know you're 05. Nice. Yeah. But when I used to be a single guy, and this is not single guy, single girl, you know, I looked at somebody I wanted to date and the two measures I would measure it against was value. Were they fun to be with, you know, good time hanging out. And then I weighed the maintenance component. Uh, like, what is it like to have to be, you know? And, and so if we were being honest, you were looking for high value and low maintenance, low maintenance right? Yeah. And so I have a whole matrix that I've made out of that. But here's the thing. If we have to understand from a human behavior perspective, based on how we've evolved, about 80% of how we view other people comes down to just two factors, warmth and competence. And so here's the thing. So I would put warmth in more of the value quadrant, and then I would put the competence bit more aligned with maintenance. Competence meaning are, you know, you do thing, you do what you say you're going to do. You do things quickly. You make it easy. But here's the thing. Do people value competence over warmth or warmth over competence? What do you think? I'd say that they would tend to value warmth over competence. You are 100 percent. Yes. yes. And so that would be another thing that some research will tell you that if you focus more on the warmth piece or elevating and creating those key moments, that those moments can actually return like a 900% ROI over just fixing problems and, you know, filling the potholes. Of course. I loved your perspective, how you put it. Yeah. Fix the things that are, you know, most important, but you don't have to fix everything. Don't get sucked into that. Cause no, my friend Evan, co author, goes, then you just start playing whack a mole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. You, That's you, it. You knock three down and what happens? Three yeah, pop three up again. Up. Yeah. Yeah. A handful of years ago uh, in my previous career, I was explaining this concept to others and I created this graph that showed, okay, here's our customer expectations and here's the lines of where our customers expect our experience to be. We want to find out where we can create those peak moments that go above that top line of their expectations. At the same time, we've got to make sure that even if our experience has some dips, there aren't any that go below that minimum point. Right. And those would be those handful of potholes, those things that your customers absolutely hate, those moments of truth that you right. have to fix. Right. And here's the thing I would tell you, I've done a lot of work now, especially last summer, we came out with Pink 2.0. Right. And Pink returns to kind of my roots as a marketer. 
and thinking about your brand strategically. And I know that that's close to your heart. But here's the thing. If you know your customers and you know what's important to them, you can't be great at everything. Right. Yeah. Right. So what you've got to do is figure out ways that you can steal time, attention, and resources from areas that don't matter in order to lopside, we call it lopsiding, the things that do matter. And I think one of the, the challenges that we have is that we're not designed to be willing to be transparent and open about the things that make us weak or the things that we know we're going to gloss over because they're not important to the customers that we serve. Gotcha. Well, and, and then sometimes it's, you know, being able to show and recognize, hey, here's what is weak about us, or even using a different term than weak, like here's what's a little bit different right. and kind of uh, showcasing that. I had thought about that concept recently, and for whatever reason, some of the latest Listerine ads kept popping into my mind because these are at like, I use Listerine because I know that it, it really cleans my mouth right. well. I wouldn't choose to taste that. I wouldn't choose to put that in my mouth any day right. because it's really difficult. But they've doubled down on that fact and their ads show people in the mirror making their you know hardcore faces like that face you have to make when you're swishing your Listerine right. around. Right. One of our favorite examples is from Canada. It's a cough syrup company called Buckley's. Yeah. Have you ever heard of Buckley's? I've heard of it through you. Oh, man. I mean, they did a taste test. <laughs> yeah. For, by the way, it had been around for 90 years, and they got down to about 2% of the market in Canada. I mean, they were struggling. And um, conventional wisdom would go, it tastes horrible. Well, you need to flavor it. You need to reconstitute it, right? And instead of doing that, they leaned in and leaned into the bad taste. And I love this. They did a they did these blind taste tests where they compared Buckley's cough syrup to trash bag leakage oh. <laughs> to sweaty gym socks to, I don't even know what this is, but it sounds horrible, public restroom puddle. And every time the person picked the other thing, like that tasted better because the Buckley's, and basically they were saying it tastes awful and it works right? Yeah. People swear, you know, at it and, and, uh, you know, buy it, you know, no pain, no gain type of thing. And they, they went within like a 18 month period, they went from like 2% of the market to 11%. That's pretty significant. I'm, I'm not Canadian, but I think they call that a hockey stick <laughs> there you in go. Canada. Yeah. 550%. <clears throat> uh, increase. So, you know, what we found is, and I loved, you know, a lot of people don't like to call it weakness. Right. Let's say it's the things that make you unique, right? That are inherent to you. Your uniqueness. Right. Your uniqueness. And what most people, and we do this in customer experience all the time, we start to benchmark whoever the leader is within our category, right? And we start to pull apart the attributes which make them, and before we know it, whether we admit it or not, we start doing the same thing. Right. And that's obviously not a road to stand out. You know, that's a road to sameness. 
Yeah. We learned we've only done 400 examples for pink, but there's only two ways you can stand out is doing more of what inherently makes you different. We call that um, like a peacock philosophy, like not being afraid to put it out there. That's the more strategy. The other way, which is counterintuitive, the other way to stand out is to actually do less of what everyone else does as normal. Okay. And but by doing less, you actually stand out. Well, of course. Yeah. 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 Well, and that's all that we've been talking about. Like, that's how you're going to grow is if you can stand out, if you can be differentiated, if you can be different from everybody else so that, right. that people will recognize you. It, it turns out research will tell you that only about 3% of, of brands and people actually have the ability to stand out and be different. 97% are stuck within the box. And so the box is they're stuck within the norms of their industry. Are you saying have the ability or, or simply choose the ability? It's a great question. From what's been studied, only about 3% actually stand out. So whether they lack, they lack the ability or not, yeah. but those brands or people have the ability to expand that box and what's interesting is, you know, we call it the zebra quadrant, right? Doing more of what is considered normal. You can do less of what makes you unique, which is what we call a cow strategy, right? They're oblivious to what makes them unique, even though all cows are unique. Or you can do the zebra thing, which is doing more of what everyone else does as normal, right? Because you can't tell one zebra from another zebra. Right. In fact, I just read this most fascinating piece of research is that when, when research was, would study zebras, like they would make some type of notation about behavior of a zebra and they would put their head down and make the note. And when they looked up, they couldn't tell which one that they just. And so this is the interesting thing. Well, what do they do to fix that? Well, they would go out in the truck and they would take a little bit of red paint and they would put a little red paint on the, the hind quarter or they would tag them so they know which ones. But here's the thing. Once they did that, the lions would kill the zebra. Oh, wow. Because they were easier to single out. Yeah, they were easier to single out when they, they were hunting. And so they would take down that because it used to be, well, you would look at, you know, they would take down the smaller zebra or the one with a limp. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they would do that because being small or having a limp, also makes you stand out from the herd. Right. Right. So what's interesting is most brands don't want to stand out. And what this researcher talked about is that as human beings, you know, we want to be towards the middle because if you're towards the edges, right, you get picked off. And fish are like that as well. When you ever see fish, they're always trying to jostle who's in the middle. They're changing direction the whole time because of the same thing. And what's interesting is zebras camouflage themselves not against their environment, but against other zebras. And what's interesting is, and this is part of why they do that is a very good prey defense. Right. Because when a lion sees four or five zebras, they actually don't see four or five zebras. They see one oh. really big one and they won't attack it. Yeah. 
I'm not going to attack a giant zebra. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So fa- fasc- fascinating stuff. I just, again, everything that I write about is about how to grow via differentiation. And pink, I believe, is probably, a just like purple, very foundational, but more from a strategic brand perspective. Yeah, there, there it is. I mean, I think we could just spend so much time diving into this zebra analogy <laughs> and compare that to the majority of C-suite leaders who are afraid of having the company stand out too much. You'll get ridiculed. Right. Customers aren't going to get this. And so we're just going to tank everything. Right. So let's be let's be a little different, but not a lot, not too much. Right. The thing is to be safe, they water down yeah. that. They, they sh- you know, take the sharp edges yeah. off of it. And so it takes a lot of courage to, to do what we call the peacock philosophy, right? To like, all right, this is me. I own it, right? Or to do what we call the polar bear philosophy. So polar bears are really interesting animals because they're pretty much live solitary lives. They don't follow the herd, right? And most people think that polar bears are white. They're not white, they're black. And the reason why their skin is black, the reason why we see them as white is because their fur is hollow and translucent. Yeah. And so the light passes through, what gets removed is all of the color. And that absence of color comes back to our eye as what we see as white. And and so I love that as a metaphor of, again, not leaving the herd, but taking things away as a way of being able to stand out, right? And being unapologetic about it. Yeah. That, that's key. What we call being unapologetically flossom. Yeah. Yeah. I love the, the flossom concept and owning your uniqueness. Because right. like everything that we've talked about, you know, there's so many things that you can't control. But what you can control is how you stand out, how you differentiate yourself. It's the only thing you can control. Yeah. 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 And and here's the thing from a society perspective, like I used to live in Australia and in Australia, they have syndrome. They call it the tall poppy syndrome. I've heard of it. Right. So you field of poppies, one grows up to be bigger and literally it's like lop it right off. Who are you to think that you're bigger? Yeah. Than everyone else in Denmark, it's like rooted within like literature. There's a great piece of work they call it the Law of, of Yante, and, it, and it's the same exact thing. It's like you're not better than anyone else, you shouldn't stand out, you're not special. And a lot of people get conditioned to go, That I can't do that, right? And again, I see there being that. It's kind of same conditioning, you know, with too many businesses, too many brands that are afraid to stand out. But what we've seen, you know, from your thousand and one plus stories is that the brands that are able to stand out and are able to differentiate themselves are the ones that win. So I know we need to be wrapping it up, but before we do, could you leave me with your differentiated experience manifesto, your, your DX manifesto? Yeah. So it's simply this, you know, your brand today is no longer what you tell people it is. What your customers experience, it's how your employees feel when they're delivering that experience, 
It's what your customers feel. And most importantly, it's what they tell others about that experience. I always say, you know, all else is derivative of that and only that. That's it. I love that. And I love like so many lessons just tied up in just a few succinct statements. So thank you for indulging me. Last question for you. If you were to create a five song soundtrack for Purple Goldfish or for all your goldfish work, what songs would you include? So I'm going to go to the warmth and competence bit that we talked about, because I think it's such a fundamental thing that drives everything we do and experience. How are we reinforcing our intent, that warmth piece? And how are we delivering on what we say we're going to do, the competence piece? And how do we make it easy? So I'm going to go a little Marky Mark and good (laughs) vibrations. You know, I I love, love, I, I, I cannot feel good when I'm thinking about that. The second one on the set list, I'm going to go, this is a weird one. One of my books is Yellow Goldfish, which is all about happiness. Yeah. And the re- part of the reason behind Yellow is, is kind of sunshine. So I'm going to go with Walking on Sunshine by Katrina oh, and the Waves. Nice. Very catchy that. as well. Very upbeat um, too. Yeah. I, I couldn't pick out one Prince song, but to me, <laughs> if I think of any artist that embodies purple, it would be Prince, right? The moment of silence. So I went with Purple Rain, right? There you go. Which, uh, but he's amazing. You turned me on to this, Lanyap by Trombone Shorty. Yeah. And I had, I had one more. It was Be Yourself by Audio Slave. Yeah. yeah. And to me, that embodies the whole pink goldfish, like own it, be flaunting to me is, is actually a positive word. Like the definition that we use is to parade without shame, right? To own who you are. And to me, and this is my co-author, David Rendell, who's amazing. You know, he's a believer, you know, what makes us weak is also what makes us strong. And what makes us weird is truly what makes us wonderful. And so, yeah, be yourself. There you go. Wow. No, I, I, I love those. Love that soundtrack. Thank you for playing along. <laughs> All right. I've learned so much from you today, San, but where can people go to learn more? So I'm big. I lopsided. Try to practice what I preach. I don't do anything on Instagram or Facebook or TikTok. Um, a little bit on YouTube, but majority of time I spend is on LinkedIn. So if you're interested in learning more, I write each day under the hashtag the1299. So T-H-E-1299. And uh, website is stanphelpspeaks.com. There you go. Well, good for you for simplifying your online presence. Gosh, I've got to learn from that. Awesome. Well, it was so great talking with you today. I'm so grateful for your lessons. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Matt. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Stan Phelps. So go and visit him at stanphelpsspeaks.com. You'll get access to all his lessons. And be sure and check out all of his books in the Goldfish series. But if you want a good starting point, I suggest you start with Purple Goldfish 2.0. And hey, if you're enjoying the Simple Brand Podcast, go ahead and hit that subscribe button because it's going to make it so much simpler for you to get future episodes like the next one featuring Donna Cutting. 
Just like Stan, Donna's also a certified speaking professional, and she's the founder and CEO of Red Carpet Learning. She works with mission-driven leaders to help them create cultures of happy, engaged people who deliver exceptional customer service. She's been named one of the top 30 global gurus in customer service and in organizational culture. And she's the best-selling author of three books devoted to delivering red carpet experiences, including her latest, Employees First, Inspire, Engage, and Focus on the Heart of Your Organization. Donna and I talk about how rolling out a red carpet experience to your employees is just as important as the experience you deliver to your customers. And we talk about some of the key ways to ensure that you're attracting, onboarding, and retaining top talent, all based on the employee experience you deliver. So go ahead and subscribe. You'll automatically get Donna's episode as soon as it's live. Until then, keep it simple. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Simple Brand Podcast. Want to make your listening experience simple and automatically receive each new episode? Visit our website, simplebrandpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you're finding value from the Simple Brand Podcast, leave us a rating or review. That helps us get the show to the ears of the people who need it most. Be sure to catch Matt right here next week. Same Matt time, same Matt channel. Until then, keep it simple.